0: Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I've often talked about the role that commentaries can play on the development and the proclamation of a sermon on Sunday. Perhaps the text is really familiar. It's a story that everyone knows, and the pastor desperately wants to find a new angle, how to bring something new to an old, old story. Or perhaps the passage appears so difficult that the preacher just wants all the help the preacher can get. I mean, think about the Good Samaritan. Most of us already know the story of the Good Samaritan. We know how it starts, we know the middle, we know the end, and we kind of know how the sermon is going to go. So you pull out a commentary to find a new angle to bring and some fresh life to an old familiar story. Or you're reading from the Old Testament and you find out that David cut off 200 Philistine foreskins and gave them to the king in order to marry the king's daughter. What in the world do you say about a guy cutting off 200 foreskins? It's in the Bible. Look it up. You pull out the commentary to try to give you an idea on what in the world this could mean for us, a people of faith. Commentaries, they can be an invaluable tool when doing this thing that I get to do every week. But sometimes the commentaries, they just they just fall flat. I look through every single commentary I own on the Gospel of Luke in my office this week to prepare for this sermon. Because the temptation of Jesus, it's one that most of us know. doesn't matter if you've been to church one time or a hundred times. You've probably heard some version of this story. It is so familiar that I want to find a new angle into it. But at the same time, it's also really complicated. It's a both and because it's got the devil in it. What in the world do you say about the devil? What do you say about a story that we all know but also has a character that we all ignore? So I pulled all my commentaries down on Luke, and I read for this text. And this is what I read. Just like Jesus, we will all face trials and temptations. It's hard to say that without giving a little southern draw. We will all face trials and temptations, and we need to do everything we can to resist them in whatever way they present themselves. When we read these words from the devil, it is a reminder that we need to take on a posture of intentionality to rebuke his destructive advances. We read this story at the beginning of Lent as a reminder that we need to let go of the things that are keeping us from God. Do you notice anything about those three sentences? Anything strange? Because I did. Because in every commentary I read about the temptations of Jesus... They are ultimately more about our temptations than about the one who is resisting the temptations. To put it plainly, the commentaries I read this week make it seem as if Jesus is an afterthought in our never ending battle with vices. Or, to put it another way, God helps those who help themselves. That is antithetical to the gospel. Is one of the worst sentences a preacher can ever say. You want to know why? Because the whole story of the Bible is this: God helps those who cannot help themselves. Every commentary I read about Jesus' temptation told preachers like me to talk about our temptations at the expense of talking about Jesus' temptations. Except this story is not about us. There are only two characters in it: Jesus and the devil. It's about Jesus's temptation. On Ash Wednesday, many of us gathered here in this sanctuary and we heard those frightening words, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. With those ashen crosses on our foreheads, we took the first steps into a season that is often marked as sacrifice and repentance and fighting against temptations. And you know, there are plenty of things that we can or probably should give up. It's a good time of year to do that kind of stuff. Did you know that four out of every ten adults in America are obese? Four out of every ten. Half the people in the room almost. Maybe we should go on a collective diet. You know? Did you know that the average American has $5,331 in credit card debt right now? Maybe we should go on a budget as a whole church. It would certainly make things a lot better, right? I could go on and on with all the problems that could have a solution. But that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. I don't know what that has to do with Jesus. If Lent is a season of giving things up, probably, or perhaps today, what we should really give up is the idea that we can resist temptation. Because all of us are like those kids that want to knock the tower over. All of us are those kids who are told, don't touch the M&M's, and all we want to do is touch the M&M's. If we need to abandon anything this season, maybe it's the notion that giving something up makes us better people. Maybe we should ditch the belief that life is up to us. (coughs) Because if Lent is at all about us, it's about how far we are from God. It's about how unlike God we are. And yet God chose to be like us in order to rectify the wrongness in us. I don't know about you, but when I hear the story when Bob was reading it to us today... I don't know if I should be grateful to Luke for giving us this story. It's one of those times where when someone says the word of God for the people of God, and we all say, thanks be to God. I don't know if we should be thankful for this story. Because the more I read it, the more it makes me feel miserable about myself. The devil says, Jesus, if you really are the son of God, then do something. You know, this world, it's going to hell in a handbasket. There are people who are starving for food. They're suffering from the chaos of a world that would be really incredible if someone with power like you would smack them into shape. There are people, they're wandering around in darkness waiting for God to give them a sign. And you know what? You could be the one to give them that sign. It's like the devil is taking a look at Jesus and realizes to himself, wait a minute. If you and me, we went in together on this, We could fix everything. What frightens me about this story is that the more I read it, the more I hear myself in the devil's questions. Because I think I know what's best for the world. If Jesus could just get with the program, if Jesus could just get with my program, we could fix all this brokenness everywhere. I mean, take away from Jesus the fact that he is the Lord, and this little story, he looks like a jerk. Why won't he just work a miracle and bring himself something to eat? Why won't he just take control of the world and fix all of our problems? Why won't he give the world a taste of God's saving power? I hear myself in the devil asking the questions. But those questions are our temptations. It's about what we want. It's about what we want and it shows us how far we are from Jesus, how far we are from God, how far we are from the Holy Spirit. It shows how this story, it's just like any kind of conversation between two people who simply do not understand one another. So the devil, the devil is operating out of a worldview that is a lot like ours. He wants a demonstration of power. He wants immediate gratification. But Jesus, Jesus is not operating out of a worldview. He's operating out of a kingdom view that is completely unlike ours, He knows the myth of progress to which we are so inextricably tied. Because if we were capable of fixing this world, don't you think we would have done it by now? We've had this message from Jesus for 2,000 years. Of course, the hungry should be fed, the wanderer should be led, the hopeless should be given hope. But we've been doing that kind of work for a long time, a really long time. And I don't know if we have anything to show for it. We are so much a people of the world instead of the kingdom that it's nearly impossible to see this story from any point of view other than the devil's. Again, if you take away the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, take away the fact that we know how the story ends, the devil's questions, they sound pretty reasonable. And that's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy to realize that here at the beginning of our Lenten journeys that the person with whom we have the most in common in this story isn't Jesus, but the devil himself. The craziest thing of all is that if you do know the whole story, you know that Jesus eventually does all the things that the devil tempts him to do. Not out there in the wilderness, not during those 40 days, but by the time we get to the empty tomb, we discover that Jesus has done all those things in his own time and his own way. When he's with the devil in the wilderness, he refuses to turn a stone into a loaf of bread to satisfy his hunger. But later, he takes some bread and some fish. He feeds 5,000 hungry people. When he's with the devil in the wilderness, he refuses to worship the devil to gain control of the world. But later, he does gain control of the world. Not through military, not through might, not through power, but through the vulnerable arms of the cross. When he's with the devil in the wilderness, he refuses to test God's willingness to demonstrate his saving power. But later he dies. He's buried in the ground, only to rise again through God's power. How strange a story this is. How strange of a story it is for us to read. Because in it we discover the God who took on flesh to be like us is actually completely unlike us. We catch a glimpse of the entirety of the gospel in just a few verses, and we even celebrate Jesus' ability to resist temptation, even though he eventually makes all of those tempted realities real in his own way. One of the greatest temptations during this season we call Lent is to puff ourselves up, as if we are beyond and above the temptations that are thrown to us by the world. The hard truth of the gospel is that even if we are able to resist a temptation or two, even if we're able to leave that bowl of M&Ms on the table, part of our human nature says that one day we will succumb. We will eat the food we know we shouldn't. We will hurt the people we know we shouldn't. We will foolishly believe that we know what's best for ourselves, that we know what's best for the world, we know what's best for the church, that we even know what's best for Jesus. Jesus. I like to think on some of my good days that I'm a pretty okay person. I like to believe that given the right set of circumstances, I will make the good and I will make the right choice. I like to imagine that there's more goodness in me than badness. But there are parts of me that are simply indefensible, there are parts of me that are bad. I've made wrong choices. I've hurt the people I care about. I've thought myself greater than I really am. At the heart of Lent is a willingness to look in the mirror and really see who we are. And I don't like what I see sometimes. And if pastoring has taught me anything, is that there are parts of each of you that are indefensible as well. You know, that particular word you said that one time that hurt someone so badly they haven't talked to you in years. You know, that omission of something seemingly insignificant that became a wedge between you and your partner or you and your child or you and your parent. You know, that foolish assumption that you made that elevated you above everyone else and it resulted in nothing but people around you resenting you. There are parts of me that are indefensible. There are parts of you that are indefensible as well. There is a really frightening reality in the words we say in church over and over again. We say them, and if you're like me, we don't give them nearly enough thought. Merciful God, we have confessed that we have not loved you with our whole heart. Merciful God, we have failed to be an obedient church. Merciful God, we have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. There are parts of us that are bad. And if we don't know that to be true, then we do not yet know God's grace. If we don't understand our own defenselessness in the grip of sin and in temptation and in death, then we do not yet know who it is who comes to us as the one who justifies the ungodly. It's Jesus. Jesus, the one who rebuffs the temptations of the devil, he is the one who comes not to make our lives better, not to make our lives easier, not to give us the strength to resist our own temptations. Jesus simply comes to live and die and live again to justify us. The crosses are covered in our worship because they are a mark of our own shame. It is a sign of the capital punishment that resulted in the Son of God's death. It is inexplicable that some of us wear a sign of death around our necks. It is a frightening sign. One that we are not nearly frightened of enough as we should be. Because we can look at the cross and not think much about it. But today, I hope when you look at the cross, even with it being covered, you survey it in all of its wonder and all of its violence. And you will realize it is a sign for people like you and me that our God is a God of impossible possibility. Because when we look at the cross, when we think about what God was willing to do for us, when we read about the temptations in the wilderness, it is a harrowing reminder that Jesus does for us what we cannot and what we could not do for ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves from evil. He delivers us from evil. It's a big difference. So we offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.